I woke up at 2.30 this morning thinking about this sermon. I couldn't sleep, so I got up and came across the video that you just saw that was on Wave 3 News, uh, going live, I think, as, as I was viewing. And it's a standoff between the public and the police that took place about 10 miles from where we stand right now. All of a sudden, my plan to preach on simplicity didn't quite feel right. We live in such a conflicted, controversial, and contentious world that for maybe the first time in over 25 years of preaching and teaching, I thought it might be best for me to write down what I want to say today. Some of what I'm going to touch on over the next few minutes will connect directly with the most volatile and polarizing topics of our day, and that actually is the point, is that we are polarized, and life isn't simple. We'll start here with the coronavirus, stay-at-home orders, the danger or lack thereof of the virus, wearing masks, not wearing masks, when to close down, when to re reopen. There's no doubt that COVID has raised many, many questions and caused us, even on a deeper level, to question who do we trust, where can we find accurate information, and what is our part in disseminating that information. Kyle Eidelman, the pastor of the quite large Southeast Church here in Louisville, said this last week that they polled all their people and their people were split. 33% thought they should have opened their doors a couple weeks ago. 33% thought they should be opening now and 33% thought that they should be waiting, that it's not time yet. He said on a scale of 1 to 10, almost everyone was a 10 in their convictions on this matter. It's been a challenging time for church leaders, for rank-and-file citizens, and for government officials. Knowing right action in the face of COVID-19 is not easy, and understanding what is best is often not simple. It's made us ask questions about government. What is the role of government? And specifically in America, what is the government for the people and by the people? What is the balance between freedom and security, and who's to say where those lines should be drawn? Some even wonder, is the government actually out to get us? Can it be trusted? The question of government responsibility has been a long-standing line between liberals and conservatives for as long as I can remember, and recent events seem to etch that line deeper into stone. Most agree that government should offer some degree of both protection and provision for its people, but it's those questions of how much protection and how much provision have become the focal point of massive groups of people deeply hating one another. Politics are not simple. Government is not simple. And then we get to the topic of racial reconciliation, equity, and healing. And we've all watched in horror over the last few weeks at what, in my opinion, can only be described as the murders of Ahmaud Arbery and George Floyd. The chilling mantra, I can't breathe, has become a permanent part of our nation's vocabulary. I'm tired has become an unpretentious maxim to describe an entire race's collective level of frustration and despair. More and more other races are feeling it too, and you, you would think that some of the situations like the inexcusable lynchings that we've witnessed are so clearly unjust and worthy of communal protest as to be undeniable. But already groups like Derek Chauvin, race warrior, have risen up on social media, proclaiming Floyd's murderer as a hero. It's sickening, it's frustrating, but it's reality and I'm tired too, and I hope you're at least getting there. I know at least one brave soul that stood with the protesters last night, and I most likely know one of the brave police force that tried to calm them down and get them to return home. It's a crazy, divided, and messed up world, and that doesn't mention deeper issues of race that go back hundreds of years. What are the systemic results of men owning other men, treating them like property? What is the trickle-down effect of the wealth generated and passed on generation after generation, and how have I benefited from it? Is there a way to make it right, and what is that way? If attempts to reconcile are made, how far is too far? When is the debt paid? Was the debt paid in blood long ago, or is there still more to do? 
Do we have the fortitude to face these questions? More so, do we have the resolve to follow through with our answers? And even this doesn't go back far enough. Our ancestors took this land from its inhabitants centuries ago, and we have prospered as a result. None of us have clean hands. The topic of race is not simple. And in the midst of all this confusion, a well-known public speaker on the intersection of faith and sexuality had this to say about the question, could the pandemic be an answered prayer? She said, have you considered June will be the first in decades without a public gay pride march? And she continued to infer an answer to her own question with another question, are you praising God for this disruption? I won't be telling the whole truth if I didn't tell you that this incensed me. Some of you listening are very much pro-gay LGBT supporters and allies. Some of you believe God doesn't condone same-sex sexual behavior, and many of you are somewhere in between or confused on the issue. But it seems that no matter where you stand, the not-so-subtle implication that God somehow allowed or even designed this virus as an answer to prayer in order to stymie gay people's attempts to gather is, at least from this pastor's view, heartless, cruel, and a misrepresentation of how God interacts with the world. If you take it to its conclusion, what this means is that God, at least partially, to answer prayer and stop gay pride parades, subjected up to hundreds of thousands of people to isolated, miserable deaths. Quite literally thinking, I can't breathe in their final waking moments. Economies collapsed, starving people perished, jobs were destroyed, desperate people ended their own lives. In this narrative, God is the one with his knee on people's throats. It is, as I see it, miserable and harmful theology. But that isn't to take away from the complexity of the questions surrounding faith and sexuality. It's a topic I spent countless hours on, and I can say without hesitation that human sexuality is crazy complicated, and biblical interpretation on that and many other issues is challenging. It's not simple. Biblical interpretation is so challenging, in fact, that we have about a thousand different denominations with about a million views on how Scripture should be interpreted. How should scripture be interpreted? What weight should it carry? What is God like? Should we drink alcohol or not drink alcohol? Baptism, is it immersion or sprinkling? Adults or babies? Does baptism save us or show us our salvation or something else? And what does salvation even mean? Do we ask the saints and Mary to intercede for us or not? Is speaking in tongues for today or was that for way back when? Does God heal? How does he heal? When does he heal? Under what circumstances does he heal? Will we be raptured and then the tribulation will come? Or the tribulation and the rapture? Or will there even be such an event? Are we reading this right? How old is the earth? What parts of the Bible are prescriptive and what parts are descriptive? Did God endorse genocide? Should women teach or even speak in the church? What does inspiration really even mean? What was the mechanism God used? It's exhausting and hard and anything but simple. And I'm a huge advocate of the Bible and I carry what they call a high view of Scripture. I've staked my life and my worldview on it. But I also believe those who say things like the Bible says it, I believe it, that settles it, need to, in my opinion, allow themselves to think a little bit more. Right understanding the Bible is not simple. And then don't get me started on relationships, the pinnacle of human existence. From the time we're kids, it's what we crave. As we get older, they seem to grow more and more complicated if we even allow ourselves to stay in them. I know that even in preaching this message, I'll most likely have conflict with dear people that I love on all sides of the aisle. I'd love to live in a world where relationships were simple, but they're not. COVID, COVID was complex and is complex and challenging. Politics, complex, challenging. The topic of race is complex and challenging. Sexuality is the same. Understanding the Bible isn't simple. Relationships aren't simple. Life, it seems, 
isn't simple. So where do I turn for simplicity? I wanted to start this video today, or this sermon today, with a video of the old uh, Calgon Take Me Away commercial, where the kids are going crazy, and the husband's calling, and the boss is calling, and the, the woman is going, going nuts, and she says, Calgon, take me away, and jumps in a bath. And I found this little picture, and that just seems like a way too small tub for me. But when we're talking about simplicity, we're talking about getting away from what is hectic, getting away from what is complex and what is complicated, and finding, finding a center, finding some place where we can kind of breathe, whether it's taking a hot bath, whether it's laying in a hammock, or whether it's lunch with friends. We crave simplicity. We, we crave simpler days, days where we don't have all the chaos, days where people are not riding in the streets. We hunger for that. And my contention today is that what we're actually craving for is God. That's the simplicity we're wanting. He is the one that can, he's the only one that can fulfill that. Because when we look at all these issues, sexuality and race and scriptural interpretation and government and politics and, and freedom from a virus, what, what we're looking for is kind of a short list. We're looking for justice. We're looking for truth. We're looking for connection. And we're looking for security. These are base needs in people's lives. That's, these are what we hunger for. They're kind of summed up in two words that are in the Greek and the Hebrew in the Bible, and they're sozo and shalom. Sozo is the Greek word that is most often translated salvation. And so almost every time when you read the word salvation in the New Testament, it's this Greek word sozo, which kind of means all is right with the world. Everything has been rescued. Everything has been made whole. And this word shalom is the Hebrew word that's most often translated peace, and it kind of means the same thing. All is right with the world. All has been made whole. That's what we're looking for. So when we cry out for justice, we're crying out for sozo. When we cry out for connection and security, we're crying out for shalom. We're crying out for the peace of God. When people protest, that's what they're looking for, shalom and sozo. I want to refer to the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy on Divine Simplicity. There's an article you can look it up, and it's pages long. And I'm going to read an excerpt from it, and odds are you're going to get lost in this excerpt. I know that I do. It, says, it goes like this, and you'll probably have a hard time reading it from the seats. It says, according to the classical theism of Augustine and Anselm Aquinas and their adherents, God is radically unlike creatures, cannot be adequately understood in ways appropriate to them. God is simple in that God transcends every form of complexity and composition familiar to the discursive intellect. One consequence is that, God's, that simple God lacks parts. This lack is not a deficiency, but a positive feature. God is ontologically superior to every partite entity, and his partlessness is an index thereof, broadly construed. Part covers not only spatial and temporal parts, if any, but also metaphysical parts or ontological constituents. To say that God lacks metaphysical parts is to say inter alia. That God is free of matter, form, composition, potency, com act, composition, and ex existence, essence, composition. Everybody with me and got that down? Everybody good? Thankfully, the author of this article that goes on and on and on like this summarizes it just after this. He says this. There is also no real, distinct, real distinction between God as subject of his attributes and his attributes. What that means is that we are partite creatures, like it referred to God being non-partite. We are creatures with parts. We are people who pursue justice. We are people who pursue connection and truth and security. And we rage and we smile and we have emotions and have heart and have feelings and have desires. And, and we are kind of a summation of all of these parts. But what the author of this article and what Christian philosophers and theologians throughout the ages have tried to argue is that God is nothing of the sort. God is the whole. So when we say God is just, we're, we don't mean that God has justice on his mind 
and does justice like we would mean about a human being. We mean he is justice. When we say God has truth or God is truth, we don't mean God thinks about what is right or thinks about reality as it were. What we mean is he is truth. He is love. He is connection. He is security. These are innate features of God. The Belgic Confession of 1561, it's a Reformed confession. I don't consider myself very Reformed in my theology, but I do think that they nailed it at the opening of their confession. The Belgic Confession says this, We all believe with the heart and confess with the mouth that there is one only simple and spiritual being, which we call God. He is eternal, incomprehensible, invisible, immutable, infinite, almighty, perfectly wise, just, good, and the overflowing fountain of all good. So God just, if we, if we put these two together, God just doesn't, he doesn't just do good or choose good or think good. He is good. He is the fountain of all goodness. So when we hunger for these things, when we have confliction and controversy and we're, we're struggling to make sense of the world and we're looking for justice and we're looking for truth and we're looking for connection and we're looking for security, what most people or many people don't realize and what we need to be fully aware of is that we're looking for the one who, who not only has all the answers, but is all the answers. The answers we're looking for, the hungers of our heart and soul, are found in him. And so when we talk about simple, that's what we're talking about. There's one focus. There's one desire. There's one hunger. There's one area that we look to, or one person that we look to. A.W. Tozer said this. He said, we're in an age of religious complexity. Simplicity, which is in Christ, is rarely found among us. In its stead, our programs, methods, organizations, and a world of nervous activities which occupy time and attention but can never satisfy the longing of the heart. For people that are looking, looking, looking when what we really need to be doing is finding, finding, finding. It's there. It's there for the taking in God, in Jesus, in Christ. A major theme of the New Testament and of the teachings of Jesus is this simplicity. You can't, you can't read the words of Jesus without coming to the conclusion that he admired simplicity and that he promoted simplicity in people's lives. He said things like this. He said, he said to the rich person, sell everything and give it to the needy. This wasn't, a, this wasn't him saying, you're bad, make yourself good. He's saying, I want you to be free. I don't want things to hold you. I don't want things to own you. Simplicity is the path forward. When he called his disciples, he told them, take nothing for your journey, not a coin purse, not, an, not extra shoes or an extra tunic. Take nothing and follow me. Simplicity, ease. When he summarized the law and the prophets, the entire Old Testament, the 613-odd laws that the Judaic people followed at that time, this is how he summed it up. He said, the law and the prophets hang on love. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. If you wanted to put together a book of laws, this would be a pretty thin pamphlet. But this was his teaching on the law. This was his teaching on the rules. Love God, love others. Quite simple. He said, don't worry about what you're going to eat. Don't worry about what you're going to wear. Don't worry about what you're going to drink. He said, the pagans worry about those things. He says, instead trust God. He says, seek God first in his kingdom and all these things will be granted unto you. Simplicity of focus. The kingdom of God is what we look to. There's not a thousand things that we need to be thinking about, a thousand things we need to be considering. He made it easy. 
when he came to his disciples, he didn't just say, hey, guys, here's what we're going to do. Here's the plan. We're going to go here and here and here, and we're going to teach this and this and this. Instead, he walked up to them and said, here I am. Follow me. Watch what I do. Do what I do. Super simple. I have a feeling when you're around Jesus that he wasn't in a huff very often. I have a feeling when you're around Jesus that he was pretty cool and collected, except when it was strategic not to be. Simple. I do a daily devotional, not every day, but, but some days, called First 15, and it's about you can experience God in the first 15 minutes of your day. And so it's an app you can download. If you, I, I, I appreciate it. I've gotten a lot out of it. But one of, the, uh, one of the devotionals recently said this, that every single thing we do, whether it involves work, family, friends, church, entertainment, school, or solitude, is meant to be marked by the simplicity of loving God. And then he quotes the most famous, this is the most translated passage of any piece of literature anywhere in the world in more languages than any other piece of literature. God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will, have, will not perish, but will have eternal life. And the author of the devotional says this, you'll never be satisfied until you rest in the powerfully simple truth of scripture that God has loved you and will always love you. There's been a, an article from the Huffington Post circulating recently on Facebook talking about men and how men need to tell their male friends that they love them regularly and how hard this is for men. And if you read the article, it starts off by saying, I never told my father these three words until the moment that I placed a stuffed bear inside his casket. And then he goes on to talk about how he mumbles these words when he meets his cousins and his brothers, but he has a hard time saying them out loud. And we're, we're a, a culture and a people that... It's hard to be transparent. It's hard to offer ourselves up to people. And the author of this article is saying we need to be doing that. It says the three words seem to make time stand still and for a brief moment whenever men say to them, outside of, outside of a romantic or sexual relationship, we're talking about platonically, but with sincere passion. It says he, throughout the chapters of his life, there have been many men that he's, he never said the words to and he wishes he had. It's this idea that we're, we're hungering for something. Something is simple. God is love. He is love. He doesn't, he does love. He acts on love. He thinks love, but he is love. And love is what we're all hunger for. There's a couple reasons this are important, and I'm closing in on the end here. One is because the loved are satisfied. This is the greatest desire of our hearts, is to be loved, to love and to be loved. And when you're satisfied, it changes you. Satisfaction reduces desperation. And when we see wars and turmoil and heartache and people desperate for money or attention or fame. A lot of it has to do with a, a missing love somewhere. Missing love causes desperation and desperation causes all kinds of really terrible things. Love is the answer. How do we know that we are loved? How do we know that this is true, what the devotional said, that we are loved and we will always be loved? And we know because of this. It says that God showed his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. See, a lot of people will say, Christ couldn't possibly love me. I've been too bad. I've done too many bad things. I did this hateful thing. Or I did, I did the unspeakable that I've never told a single person. Or I'm just lazy. God, there, all of us could look to the almighty God and say, I will never add up, and we would be absolutely right. But the good news is that God does it in reverse. He doesn't love you after you're made right. He makes you right through his love, through connecting with him and being changed from the inside out. It's a, it's a, it's a bottom-up government. 
Each soul, each person gets a hold of this love and it transforms them and changes them. Not because they were good, but because God is good. God is good. It says, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. We've seen the banners, we've, heard, we've seen the t-shirts, we've heard the, the podcasts and the broadcasts about this, this phrase, I can't breathe. It's a horrendous phrase that I wish I'd never heard, and yet I have. But I got to thinking about Jesus. We watched this, and, I, and I'm, hap, I'm, I'm fine calling it a murder. We watched this murder this week when a white cop had his knee on a black man's throat and choked him to death. And he was crying for his mom and saying, I can't breathe. And, and what we do, we post memes, we present platitudes, but what Jesus would do is he would step up and step in. See, Jesus, in my opinion, had he been in that situation, he would have invaded the situation. He would have changed it. To the point he would have stepped in and allowed himself to be crushed instead of another person. It's super interesting to me that the death that's caused by crucifixion is one of suffocation. Jesus literally died saying, I can't breathe. He stepped in, he stepped up in place of the suffering, in place of the, the tormented, in place of the oppressed, and allowed himself to be the one to take it upon him. The same passage that we just quoted says, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. So my son, I, I, I put this picture up there last week. He's 11 years old, and there's a, a universal law that at 11, your obnoxiousness level rises. And he has gotten a hold of the song, The Final Countdown, which is by Europe, I think. And I, I know this, you know, it's played on the keyboard over and over. The final countdown, over and over and over. And he will come up behind me and get in my ear and go, and he does it all the time. And he can be in, that, in a place in, in the house by himself, knowing, not knowing anybody else is around. And I hear him going, doo -doo -doo -doo. and he, he likes to be loud, and he likes to poke his sister and throw things at her. And, and, and he, he's a good kid, but man, he's got a bundle of energy in him. And so I've been asking him this one question. I've, said, and, and to the, I've asked him the question so many times now that now all I say to him is, Siler, what is the question? Here's the question and a follow-up comment. The question is, is what I'm about to do obnoxious? The answer is, if yes, don't do the thing. This has been my instruction to him. So now when he's going doo -doo 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 in his sister's ear or he's throwing a book at his little brother, I say, Siler, what is the question? Is it obnoxious? What is the answer? Yes. So don't do it, right? Where it relates to all this is I think there's a big question that we all need to get in our minds when we're looking for justice and truth and security and connection, and that is the question of, is it loving? Is it, is it rooted and grounded in love? Ephesians describes this, that Christ will dwell in our hearts and we will be rooted and grounded in love. We used this picture of a tree last week talking about how many great sermons are contained in a tree. and The roots and the ground, the ground is what makes a tree steady. The ground is what allows a tree to flourish. The roots are what gets into the ground and pulls in the nourishment that it needs and allows it to be fed and to grow. And so in this passage, what it's saying is your nourishment comes from love. Your grounding is in love. That's where it's at. And I don't have all the answers today. I, I, it would be stupid for me to get up here and say, life is complex, life is hard, it's difficult, it's challenging, and then say, oh, and by the way, here's the answer. I don't, that's, that's not the route I want to go today, but I know that ultimately... 
the application of love and the invasion of love in our life puts us in the direction we want to go. So I close with this thought. Just asking the question doesn't get us there as people have different answers. For example, do I wear a mask to Kroger or do I not wear a mask to Kroger? Somebody rooted and grounded in love can easily come to a different answer to that question. It's complicated, it's difficult. On all kinds of stuff, people that are rooted and grounded in love come to different answers, to the same questions, and it's happened throughout history. But I do think that if everybody would ask this question, is this out of love? There are some people who are wearing masks out of fear and out of anxiety. There are other people not wearing masks out of fear and anxiety. There's some people wearing masks, some people not wearing masks that have terrible motives. The question is, is what I'm doing loving? Is my view on race, is it loving? Is my view on sexuality, is it rooted and grounded in love? Is my view on scripture rooted and grounded in love? Is my view on government rooted and grounded in love? Love is the path forward. I'm not saying that knowing that gets us where we want to go, but I know it's the path towards the destination that we're seeking. It's love, and love is rooted in Christ Jesus who gave himself for us. Let's pray. God, I ask in the name of Jesus that we would be people of love, that we would be rooted and grounded in love. I know we seek justice, and I pray justice would come. I pray your kingdom would come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I pray truth would come, that we would see clearly. I pray systems would change to glorify you and to love people. I pray you'd raise up government leaders that will serve you rooted and grounded in love. And those that aren't, I pray that their hearts would be changed and they would be deepened in love. God, we want your kingdom to come to earth and we invite you to do what you do. We ask you to make yourself known. In Jesus' name, amen. Love you guys. Look forward to getting together soon.